Well, look, as we come to this second sermon in the Song of Songs, um, as I was looking at it, my mind was drawn back to an illustration that I read in a book called Mere Christianity, written by um, C.S. Lewis a number of years ago. And in it, he was wanting to give us a perspective on how our culture views sex and romantic love. And so he said, conduct this thought experiment. Imagine that you go to a country, and you've never been to that country before. And as you arrive at the country, you realize that this whole country is absolutely obsessed with food. So you're walking down the street, and you see numerous billboards, and food is used to advertise everything from fashion to financial instruments. And then you, you walk past news agents and you see all these glossy magazines with glossy, carefully chosen pictures of food all over them. You, you even see one magazine, FHM, FHM, Food for Him Monthly, which says exclusively in this magazine, the top 10 most tantalizing foods of 2021. And so you kind of think, wow, this culture is totally obsessed with food. And you, you walk on a little bit further and you, you see this rather seedy, you know, kind of looking joint and it, it advertises food striptease and you see people queuing to go in. You, now he says, what would you conclude about that country? Well, you might think, first of all, that this is a country where there is no food and that's why everyone is starving and they're, they're, they're for obsessing about the prospect of food because they haven't got any. But you spend a little bit longer, then you realize there's loads of food to go around. There's no shortage of food. He said what you wouldn't conclude is that here is a, a country and a culture that has got a balanced appetite for food. You would think they're obsessed in an unhealthy way about food. And so it is, he says, with our view in our culture of sex. And I wonder to push that a little bit further as we, as we come to this sermon, that our culture actually tries to hold two things in tension with regards to sex and romantic love at the same time. And this is why we're in, in many senses, such a mess. On one level, we want to deify sex, that is, raise it up to a level of ultimate importance, like a kind of God. You know, we even have that phrase, don't we? It's better than sex, as if sex is the highest possible standard that our culture can think of, and anything better than that. You know, if it's said in the ancient world that the love for Helen of Troy launched a thousand ships, well, love and sex has launched a thousand pop careers in our day and age, right? And so we, we obsess about sex. We feel like we're defined by our status with regards to sex and romantic love. Are you single or are you seeing someone? That kind of crucial question. And it can leave us feeling empty if we're not in a relationship, longing for it, making bad choices sometimes because of it. On the other side of things, we, if we don't deify sex, we at the same time try to denigrate, that's downplay sex. The phrase, it's just sex. It's just sex. As if sex is just a, a here, come, you know, here today, gone tomorrow type thing, a commodity we have. And as long as it's done between mutually consenting adults and it doesn't harm anybody, what's the big deal, right? But of course, it's pretty difficult if you spend most of your time saying things like, it's just sex, and downplaying it, denigrating it, then if suddenly you find the person, you know, the one, the one who you feel will complete you, to try to elevate, how do you elevate something you've been spending so long in your culture denigrating and pushing down? And so we're caught between this tension in our culture, and we don't know how to reconcile those two. And we need to realize that as we come to the Song of Songs, because in the Song of Songs, we're going to see a very different treatment of sex and romantic love. The Song of Songs does not deify sex. It makes it very clear it's a gift given by God. But it certainly, as we're going to see today, 
as we deal with some of the wonderful poetry, doesn't downplay and denigrate sex and romantic love. It holds it in lofty terms. So here's a different way of viewing it as we come to it. And that's why Song of Songs is why it's so important for us to be grappling with and reading in our culture so that we can have a healthy view of sex. So we're shaped by Scripture and God's view and not so much by the culture and the view at large. As we do that, as we come to the passage today, I want us to see kind of four parts to it. First of all, we're going to look at the fallenness of love. Then we're going to look at the reciprocation of love as there's this response between the lover and the beloved. Then we're going to look at the climax of love, and then we're going to put it all together with the story of love. So let's look first of all at the fallenness of love in chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. Before we plow in, though, let me just give a bit of an overview. Mark mentioned last week that it's a pretty difficult um, book of the Bible to read. And I just want to acknowledge that if you've been reading it in advance, and that's really helpful to do, you might be scratching your head a little bit. Now, let's say there are a number of good reasons for that. On one level, this is written nearly 3,000 years ago. And so you're dealing with metaphors and images which don't really connect with us. Theirs was an agricultural society. And so unless you've grown up in a kind of farming community, you'll miss a lot of these metaphors. And we'll try and unpack them as we go. But also, I think it's tricky because you're kind of working out what kind of genre of text are we dealing with here. Mark said last week, very helpfully, that this is not intended to be a kind of one-story narrative. It's not a historical narrative. It's maybe a song, or I think better, a collection of songs, you know, that were sung, and therefore it's in poetic form. And so we've got to kind of work out what's going on. And in our song today that goes from chapter 1, verse 5, through to chapter 2, verse 7, I think we've got a story if you like, a whole love song where there's a story that goes on in it and we're going to unpack it. Well, let's look first of all at the fallenness of love. As we see here, the kind of tension between memory of remembering love and sexual experiences and anticipation and longing for it again, and in the midst of it, you start in verse 5. And the woman speaks, Dark am I, she says, yet lovely. Daughter of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Scripture is so realistic. Notice the first point of engagement here with the story of love is one of insecurity. This beautiful woman who is lovely but she's strangely insecure about her loveliness. And where does that insecurity come from as she describes it? Well, it comes from my mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. So here's what's going on. In ancient Israel, a sign of wealth and prosperity and a sign of beauty would be that you could stay out of the midday sun, the, the harsh sun. But she hasn't been able to. Unlike the city girls, the daughters of Jerusalem, who have fair skin as a sign of their prosperity as a sign of the way they were able to take care of themselves, she's been forced to work in the vineyard. And so using that vineyard metaphor of herself, she says, I've not been able to take care of myself. Why has she been forced to work? Well, bluntly speaking, because her brothers haven't been doing what they should be doing. Notice straight away the fallenness, the dynamic here. Here is a woman who's lovely, but she's insecure. And her insecurity is caused because men haven't treated her the way she should be treated. She's been forced to work in the vineyard because her lazy brothers won't do their work. 
Now, it's difficult to read this in today's context without thinking a little bit about our own culture and the recent story of Sarah Everard and her awful abduction and murder and the way that that's cast a light suddenly for us to reflect on our culture and the way that men too often objectify women and the way that causes insecurity or far worse is in Sarah Everard's situation. But of course, the, the point here is not that it only goes one way, though it's highlighted here of the way that men neglect their responsibility and the damage that does to women, but it of course can work the other way. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that sin, our fallenness before a holy God, immediately leads to the battle of the sexes. So as a result of Adam and Eve sinning, rather mutually delighting in one another and caring for one another, as soon as they sin, they start to blame one another. He did it, no, she did it. And then the judgment on that, what does that lead to? Your desire, in the sense of desire to have power over, God says to Eve, will be for your husband. In other words, you'll want to rule over him, but he will rule over you. And the implication is because the size of a man's bicep is on the whole bigger than the size of a woman's bicep. In other words, power is used to fight rather than to serve. It leads to insecurity. And in the battle of sexes, there are casualties on all sides. This is the fallenness of love. And so all of us, as we come to the story of love, bear those scars of insecurity. We might be better than some at hiding them. We might present well, present secure. But of course, as you enter into the story of love, the great tension for all of us is, will I be loved back? And so we step out tentatively, longing for love, but worried that what if it's unrequited? What if this man doesn't treat me the way I should be treated? So we're cautious about our vulnerability. What if she rejects me and goes and laughs with her friends about me so we don't step out fully? The insecurity, the fallenness of love. But then look at verse 7. She hears of someone who's different, a man who doesn't treat her like her son, her brothers treated her. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. So she hears of this shepherd figure. And the picture of a shepherd here is important because a shepherd at his best, uses his power to protect, not to exploit. So she hears of a man whom she loves, and she's wondering, is he a different type of man? Will he protect me rather than exploit me? Will he love me rather than reject me? Now, a word here on the identity of the shepherd figure and in the rest of the book. It, it could be this man is a literal shepherd. Certainly both Mark and I were thinking about the overall uh, letter of Song of Songs, Book of Song of Songs, think that Solomon is the author. But I tend to think here, whereas Mark thinks that the shepherd figure is a kind of an idealized man, the, the kind of the right man, the perfect man, as it were, I tend to think this might actually be Solomon himself. David, his father, was a shepherd, and the shepherd kind of title motif was used for kings after David. And so I'm wondering here if the woman is hearing about King Solomon, maybe a young King Solomon, and saying he seems different. He seems like a different type of shepherd to the other shepherds. He seems to care for people. Now, of course, that does raise a question. Let's just take it head on. If this is talking about Solomon, are we really reading a book to take marriage and sex advice from a man who had 700 wives and 300 concubines? I mean, it is a bit awkward, isn't it? Well, two things briefly to say about that. Song of Songs, on its own terms, clearly exalts monogamous, that is, committed, faithful marriage, not polygamy. 
very clearly that. And in fact, Scripture on its own terms does that. So when we hear Solomon's polygamy talked about in other parts of Scripture, not mentioned here in Song of Songs, like 1 Kings 11, we hear this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and his wives turned away his heart. So look, Scripture is really clear that Solomon, you know, was sinning, and his heart was led away by his polygamy and by marrying all these foreign women, whereas Song of Songs exalts this exclusive relationship of love. Secondly, you say, okay, well, but still, Solomon is writing it, right? So what gives him the right to speak on this? Well, I think he's got as much right as every other author of Scripture. David writes psalms exhorting us to faithfulness when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah. Moses writes a whole book, you know, arguably, of um, Exodus about how to follow the Lord and to know him and to know his character and to be faithful in following him, and yet he didn't even enter the promised land because of the Lord's judgment on him for being faithless and turning away in his greatest hour of need. So the point is this, is that Scripture is often written down by, well, is always written down by sinful people, and yet God uses them. And I wonder if that's exactly the point. Solomon is a chastened figure, and here we see him getting it right, but we're warned that even a man who gets it right, like David, can get it wrong, and therefore be warned. And we're going to get that warning in chapter 2, verse 7 at the end of our passage today. And is this not realistic? I think pastorally, how many people I've heard caution others pastorally about pornography or lust, and then a year or two later seen them stumble themselves. I've seen many people be vociferous in warning brothers and sisters in Christ about not having their hearts led away by someone who doesn't know Christ and therefore doesn't share their faith and won't encourage them in their faith only for a couple of years later for them to come to me or to a friend and say, but this guy's different or this girl's different, even though they don't know the Lord, they seem really open, and then they're nowhere a couple of years time down the line. We're so good at giving advice, and we're bad at taking it, right? Let's not be like Solomon in that sense. Let's heed his advice, but let's take it, let's walk it out. The fallenness of love. Secondly, and more briefly, the reciprocation of love in chapter 1, verse 8. So she hears of this man, and she wants to go to him, but she's wondering as she goes on this journey of verse 8 whether he's going to respond. So off she goes. If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep to this man. Graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds, and there you will find him. And when she gets there, with all of her insecurity, how will he respond? Verse 9, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. And not the best start, is it? Let's be honest, in modern day. You know, he looks at her, his opening compliment is, you, you look like a mare. I mean, it wouldn't really work today, I don't recommend we leave with that. In the vernacular of the day, 3,000 years ago, where horses were symbols of power and strength and dignity, he's saying, you are the most beautiful of all the horses. All of the princes, that's probably what the metaphor is speaking about, of Pharaoh's chariots, all the other princes look at you and they all acknowledge your beauty you're a real head-turner, so maybe a better compliment than we first thought. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels, but he wants to add to that. I want to give you gifts 
We will make your earrings of gold studded with silver. And then what follows is this incredible mutual exchange between the lover and the beloved as they praise one another. Look at verse 15. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. In other words, when I look at your eyes, there's a gentleness, there's a peace, there's a beauty about them, just like a white dove. She responds, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. And notice, as they praise one another, as they delight in one another, it's restorative. Remember, she was insecure at the beginning. Well, look how her insecurity comes back a little bit in the next verse. Chapter 2, verse 1, I am a rose of Sharon. That's a common flower. I'm just like any old flower. She says, you know, you'll give me these compliments, but I don't feel like that. I'm just like any old flower. I'm nothing special. He responds, verse 2, no, you're like a lily among thorns. You're the only one I look at. You're the best of them all. You see how their reciprocation of love is restoring her, is helping her to feel more secure in her beauty, her femininity. Now, I want you to notice how much this mutual praise and adoration is a feature of their relationship. And I'm conscious as I speak here in Inspire and I speak to you online that we have a very mixed audience. We have different nationalities, different people, different backgrounds. But I think particularly if I can just speak maybe for us British men at the moment, this is something which is sorely lacking in our cultural experience, this idea of being effusive with praise to those we love, to those we're married to, or if you're going out, that's an appropriate point to start it. You know, an appropriate measure of intimacy, even being praiseworthy towards them. We just don't do this. Don Carson, commenting on these verses, makes a really shrewd point. He says, if a relationship is intimacy but no praise, it very quickly becomes functional. You know, you come together, you might have sex, but it's just a thing you do. The date night goes, the romance goes out the window. How easy it is for a marriage to go down those, that road. He equally says, if a marriage relationship or if a romantic relationship leading up to marriage starts with only one person praising but the other person not reciprocating, then it very quickly becomes unstable. As if one party feels insecure, wondering why the other person never returns their love and it will start to pull apart. But do you notice where there's mutual praise, how it starts to redeem and deal with the insecurities, how it starts to build one another up? Let me ask you, is this part of your married here, is this part of your marriage dynamic? Mutual praise for one another. Again, as British men, I, you know, I can't remember my father you know, speaking to my mum like this. Maybe he does when I'm not around, but it's not something of my kind of heritage and background. But it is in other cultures, interestingly, right? Think of some of the songs we sing. Think of um, African-American soul culture. See if you can recognize the song. Listen to the words. I long to see the sunlight in your hair and tell you time and time again how much I care. Sometimes I feel my heart will overflow. Hello. I've just got to let you know. Lionel Richie, right? Soul culture is, is speaking words of adoration and effusiveness to one another. Actually, British culture in the past. Listen to Shakespeare. I love you more than words can wield the matter. Dearer than eyesight, space and liberty. Men, write that down. That line is a winner every time. But here's the point, whether you have the poetry of Shakespeare or the passion of soul culture, it's got to be a dynamic in our relationship to praise her and her to praise back, to tell her the things that you delight in about her and for her to tell you. That's not sycophantic, 
That's redemptive. Ask anybody. How do you deal with insecurities? It's by the person you love the most telling you what they really think about you and how wonderful you are. It builds them up. It brings in delight. It gives fire to the intimacy, beauty to the sex. So do you compliment each other in a relationship? Both generally, but also do you compliment each other physically? Do you delight? You know, there's a way that it works that as we speak those words, it actually kindles our heart for desire for one another as well. So if you want to have a marriage relationship where you have great romance and great sex, then get good at speaking this way to one another. It doesn't have to be incredibly public if you're more private, but it does need to be in some context. And if you're starting to go out with someone or dating them, then at an appropriate time, start to introduce this in appropriate compliments with an appropriate intimacy for the time into the relationship. That's part of the way that it works. Well, as we move through now from the fullness of love to the reciprocation of love, now we come to the climax of love in chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. And I did choose that word deliberately. So chapter 2, verse 4, let him lead me to the banquet hall. Let his banner over me be love. The banquet hall here is literally in the Hebrew, the the house of wine. It's a place of feasting and celebration. It would be the place where marriages would take place. And let his banner over me be love is saying, let me make a public declaration about our love for one another. This is talking about marriage. It's doing it in metaphor. It's doing it briefly. But this is marriage, the place of feasting, the public declaration of love. And what comes after marriage? Sex. Verse 5. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. She's swooning with the intimacy. His left arm is under my head. You can visualize it. His right arm embraces me, a general term which is used more explicitly later on in the book. And so here we have the sex after marriage as they come together, the climax of love. So step back for a moment now and see what we've had in this song. We've started with the insecurity and the fallenness of love. Then we get this reciprocation and the way that she starts to be healed as they start to come together in mutual praise and delight. And then we get marriage, and then we get sex. And we only get it very briefly here, but we're going to get that same phrase of his left arm is under my head and his right arm embraced me later on the book, and we're going to get a lot more detail and intimacy in the description there. But as we step back, do you see the familiar story of love? This is a pretty typical love story, from insecurity to will he, won't he, will he respond? And as he responds to marriage and then to sex and mutual delight. This is the story of love. Now, a few things to note as we wrap up and apply. First of all, please notice where sex comes in the story. Because so much of what our culture does and the way that it downplays and denigrates sex is it removes sex from the story. What is the one-night stand if it's not basically sex without a story? There's no anticipation. There's no road to discovery. There's no great longing, or rather it's such a short longing. It's like a truncated version or a, a complete ripping of sex out of the story. But sex must always take place in the story because it's the story that gives it its framing. It's the story that gives it its beauty. In fact, pornography is one step worse. Pornography is taking sex and just, it's just the action. There's no story about it at all. There's no tenderness, there's no gentleness, there's no delight, there's no praise, there's no anticipation, just sex. And so it, it does a violence to sex as a result. 
It's not the right context for sex. Sex must always take place within a story, a story of anticipation, a story of longing, a story where there's mutuality of affection, a story of marriage, and then in the right context, sex. That's what makes sex beautiful. That's what makes it delightful. Our culture has ripped sex out of the story, and we reap the whirlwind as a result. And that's why we get this warning in verse 7. And heed the warning. It's going to come up a few times in the book. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. In other words, don't take sex out of the story. Secondly, I wonder if you notice in the story here, as I go through it from insecurity to redemption to consummation, whether you recognize another story there. It is the story of the gospel, and I think that's intentional. Lest you think that's an overreach, let me give you some other pointers in the text. The word, my beloved, that comes up, it's one word in the original Hebrew, dodi, my beloved, it comes up 26 times in the whole book. Why is that significant? Well, in Hebrew thinking, they had a thing called gematria. It was a form of numerology. It was where you could give a numerical value to a word depending on where the letters came in the alphabet. So A, B, C, C would be three, and so therefore any word with um, C in it would have kind of three points to it, as it were, and you would add them all up. Well, Yahweh, the name for the Lord in Hebrew, has got four letters in it, and those four letters, when you add them up, come to number 26. And my beloved Dodi here is given 26 times. Let me tell you, that is not an accident. Lest you think that that's potentially an overreach, notice where the marriage takes place. It takes place in the house of wine, which is a phrase used by the prophets for the temple. That house of wine is referred to in chapter 1, verse 17, and described as our house, our cedars. The beams of our house are cedars. Cedar was not a common wood. It had to come all the way from Lebanon. It was only imported for the temple. So here is a description of marriage taking place in the temple, the house of feasting. Because ultimately, the great marriage is not the marriage of whatever your favorite film is or even your marriage, though I'm sure that's wonderful. But the great marriage is the marriage between Christ and his church. The great love story is the story of longing and anticipation from Christ for his bride, the church. He is the great bridegroom. And the consummation that we all are longing for is not actually that in our marriage. As good as it is, it's only a foreshadowing. I mentioned at the beginning that our, our culture either deifies sex, raises it up to the gods, or denigrates sex and, and plays it down. Well, what does Scripture do? I want to suggest to you that Scripture sacramentalizes sex. The sacraments, will take them later, the bread and the wine or baptism, they are something which points towards something sacred. The bread and the wine takes on a greater dignity from normal bread because we take it in communion. Well, so I suggest to you that sex or romantic love as human beings takes on a greater dignity because it points towards the great relationship we're all intended for, where Christ as our bridegroom, our beloved, will one day marry us as we, his people, are his bride. And therefore, that gives more dignity to human relationships of love and human relationships of sex, whilst also keeping them in their place and saying, it's not God. It's good, but it's not God. 
So you see, the Christian simultaneously elevates sex higher than the culture, but also keeps it below the level of God. It says the sacrament, it's a foretaste. It's a wonderful foretaste, but it's just a foretaste. And therefore, for those of you who might be single and anxious about, well, am I ever going to meet him or her? Scripture says, look, I recognize on one level there's a pain there, but it's not the ultimate pain because you will one day experience the full consummation of what you long for in a relationship with Christ, the one who's really loved you. And as you read this, think about what it tells us about Jesus. If we are his beloved and he is our lover, then this means that the same type of intimacy we see here is the intimacy he will show towards us. Or put it this way, have you ever thought that God delights to sing songs of adoration over you? I don't know, even as a bloke, how I feel about that. I, I have, to get, have to kind of get over my insecurities. It feels a bit odd that God would look at me and would delight in me and sing songs of praise over me, adoring me, and that I should respond with what we do here at church as we sing songs of praise back to Him. And that mutual adoration of praise, response to God, with God, is what starts to redeem me and make me whole. Friends, that's what this is about. So if you're married here, then realize how precious that is. But don't idolize it. It's not God. It's not the ultimate marriage. If you're single here, then yes, there's a pain there, but recognize it's not an ultimate pain because one day the God who sings praises over you will delight in you and you'll see him face to face. And at that day, you'll realize it was all about that. It was just a foretaste this side of heaven. And for all of us, as we wait for that consummation in the new creation, hear the words of warning of chapter 2, verse 7. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. In other words, wait. Be patient. Trust God. Keep sex in its right place. Let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, how we praise you that you are not ashamed or awkward about talking about sex and love in these terms, and then talking about a love for us, your, your bride as your people, the church, in these terms. You love us deeply. You sing songs of praise and adoration over us. Help us maybe to go back over this passage and to think about what we hear the beloved saying of his bride to be here and thinking of you saying that about us, uh, that you love us, that you delight in us, that you affirm us, that you praise us. And might that lead to a response of praise from us, we pray. And help us to keep love and sex in its right place, not awakening it until it's time, keeping it within the story, we pray, and trusting you with that. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.